Well, do reach for your Bibles again and keep them open at Philippians chapter 4, so you can follow along as we study it together. Well, I have to confess that I stand before you this afternoon with slightly mixed emotions. It's obviously really sad that we're leaving, going back to St Andrews on Thursday. We can't believe that the last six weeks have flown by quite so quickly. We also can't believe that the tiny baby that we brought with us is now quite a, a big one. We don't know what happened to the other baby, but uh, we've, he's been replaced by this huge, smiley thing. Uh, that's very happy. Uh, but even as we feel the uh, sting of sadness that as we leave Shawboss and go back to the mainland, I confess that I'm also quite excited for one particular reason, and that's that next Saturday uh, we see the return of football, we see the return of match of the day to the TV schedules. I love nothing more than staying up late on a Saturday night and watching Match of the Day, getting all the highlights of the day's Premier League action. And when you're a Newcastle fan, that usually means staying up very, very late because they're normally on quite towards the end of the programme with all the other average teams. But it's really exciting to get that distilled highlights reel, all the best moments from all the day's football. So sad as I am to go home, I'm excited for Match of the Day. Well, this afternoon... You see that we reach the end of the book of Philippians. And as we read it, you may have noticed that the end of chapter 4, verses 2 to 23, it's kind of like a match of the day highlights reel of Paul's biggest themes in Philippians. As he brings his letter to a close, we find Paul revisiting a lot of the main themes that he's already covered. And as he's doing this, Paul is both cementing in place the principles that he's already outlined for the Philippians, and he's also building on them, giving them some final practical wisdom that's in line with everything he's already said. If you glance your eyes back up to chapter 4 and verse 1, which we read last week, you'll remember that that section ends with that verse, that charge in 4 verse 1, to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That verse is actually a hinge statement. It's rounding off the previous section and it's introducing what comes next, what we read this afternoon. And there we will see that standing firm in the Lord, as Paul has just commanded, will look like one-mindedness. It will look like calm trust in the God of peace, And it will look like active partnership in the work of the gospel. So as we set out on this series in the letter to the Philippians six weeks ago, we said that Philippians is a book full of wisdom for what it means to be a church and a book brimming with joy in Christ, even against a backdrop of difficulty and trial. And as we close today we once again see those two things brought back into conversation. This passage is one which will give us practical challenges, which we will all have to consider, and those challenges will be underpinned by a joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, which compels them. The hope and prayer this afternoon then, as it has always been throughout this series, is that we will all together grow in our own joy in Christ, even as we express that joy in our approach to partnership with one another in making the gospel known here and elsewhere. So we'll look at it under three headings this morning, three ways in which we're encouraged to stand firm. First of all, stand firm in oneness of mind. Stand firm in oneness of mind. Verse 2 we read, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Now, by now, we must know that unity is very, very important to Paul. We've mentioned it a lot through these studies in Philippians. Well, here we find him addressing a very specific case of disunity. The verse here literally reads that Judea and Syntyche are to have one mind in the Lord. That has a throwback to chapter 2, where he encouraged the Philippians to share in the mind of Christ, to be of one mind. Once again, for Paul, the gospel's reputation is damaged if Christ's people are disunited. And on the other hand, it is strengthened when Christ's people share in Christ's mind. And now here, as he draws his letter to a close, we find a really practical outworking of all those principles. We don't know exactly what Judea and Syntyche have fallen out over. We can maybe imagine how you might have been feeling as the church gathered together and somebody read this letter from the Apostle Paul and you heard your name being mentioned specifically. That might make you perk up and listen. We don't know exactly what the nature of this disagreement was. Paul doesn't seem to think that's worth addressing specifically. But what we can note is that whatever these women have fallen out over... The disagreement is secondary to something far, far greater. The fact that Judea and Syntyche are to agree in the Lord means that, yes, they might not get to the bottom of the issue. They might not be able to work out and agree exactly who did what wrong and when. We've all fallen out of people. We know that we rarely get that kind of resolution. But what they can do is they can acknowledge that they are one in Christ. And therefore, they can commit to loving one another as they get about Christ's work together and leave behind the squabbles that have caused discord. That's why Paul flags up again in verse 3 the fact that these women have labored by his side in his work for the gospel and that their names are written in the book of life. It's quite a perspective change, isn't it? He's drawing their attention away from whatever their gripe is with each other and towards the far greater truth that they are partners with each other and co-heirs of eternal life together. That really puts things in perspective for Judea and Syntyche. You haven't just fallen out with somebody else who happens to attend your church. You've got a disagreement with a co-heir of eternal life a partner in the gospel through Christ. It's also interesting as well, though, that this is a clearly a personal disagreement between two specific people, but the whole church family need to take responsibility for ensuring that these women agree in the Lord. I don't know how you react when you see people falling out in church life. It can be easy to pick sides, to help one person feel really self-justified and indignant and give the other person the cold shoulder. Or it can be easy as well to just let the awkwardness run. If we see people who are clearly not getting on, just to sort of awkwardly look at our shoes and shuffle away and just let them get on with it because it's none of our business. I take it that those must have been temptations for the church in Philippi as well. So Paul tells them there to act to help these women to remember the truths that he outlines here. True companion, it may be one person has a mind, it may mean everyone hearing it, but the point seems to be that even though this is a personal disagreement, there is a corporate charge to make sure these women come through it united. And I wonder if then 
the lesson that we learned from Judea and Syntyche is quite a transformative one for our view of church conflict. As I say, it can be so easy to cut people off. It can be so easy when we fall in line to just choose to sit somewhere different in church so we avoid them or to not go along to the fellowship we know they're going to be there or to just sort of make sure that we are heading out the door if they pop in for a visit or even to go a step further than that and not to be content with just cutting somebody off but to want to denigrate them and gossip about them and tell everyone else how we've been so deeply hurt and wronged and find people who will back us up and make us feel justified in, in keeping those feelings of bitterness. We know, really, don't we, that none of that helps. It doesn't help us. It certainly doesn't help the cause of the gospel. So what should we do instead when we find ourselves disagreeing with, disunited with people in our church family? Well, two things. We remember who we are, and then we take action. We remember that no matter who we may have fallen out with, we are co-heirs of life in Christ. We are partners in making Christ known to the watching world. The real cutting edge of Paul's line earlier in Philippians, to count others more significant than yourselves, is that that is a command which extends even to people we've fallen out with, even to people who we find ourselves not naturally liking, counting them more significant than ourselves. You know, as I reflect on these verses, I know that I see in myself the tendency towards bitterness and coldness towards my brothers and sisters. Something that I've been trying to, with God's help, grow in over the last number of years is to be able to genuinely forgive and to move past hurt and, and things which have let me down in other people. And what I've tried to learn to do, and I find quite helpful for my own spiritual well-being, is when I feel hurt and let down by somebody, I have learned to pray. Not just to pray for the situation to be resolved, but to pray for the other person. To give thanks for their faith. To give thanks for all they do to serve our church family. To pray that that person would be there on Sunday, would be there on Wednesday to hear and receive God's word. And I have found that it is much, much harder to hold on to a grudge against someone when your instinctive reaction to seeing them walk into a room becomes, praise God that he has answered my prayer, that they are here to join with me in receiving from God's word. Praise God that he is helping them to grow more like Jesus for his glory. And when we find God softening our hearts like that, when we find him changing our attitude towards brothers and sisters so that we actively want to see them grow more like Christ, that makes it inevitably easier to do the second thing, to take action. To actually find ourselves being the first one to cross the room, even if we feel that the other person ought to be the one who apologizes first, when we love them and we want to see them grow in Christ, when we delight in their spiritual life, we find it easier to cross the room ourselves, to take action, to be the first one to make peace and to restore. So this afternoon, if we find ourselves in disunity, in disharmony with brothers and sisters, maybe we need to take action. Remember who we are, remember we're co-heirs of life, and then take action. That could be something as simple as picking up the phone or dropping in for a visit this week to say sorry 
to pray together and to move forward. And if we find ourselves as onlookers to a disagreement, if we know that there are people in church life who just aren't getting on, it can be so easy to just go along with somebody else's feelings of bitterness because we don't want to cause more hurt and we don't want them to get annoyed and upset with us. But instead, we should do what we can to gently and lovingly remind people of these truths and to help them to reconcile. So that's our first point. We stand firm in oneness of mind. The Philippians are to do more than that. They're also to stand firm in Christ-centered rejoicing. Stand firm in Christ-centered rejoicing, as we see in verses 4 to 9. Verse 4 there, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's the summary of these few verses, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice. It's a command which Paul has repeated time and again to the Philippians. We've thought a lot in these last six weeks about joy and rejoicing. And apparently, uh, Paul can repeat that so much because it's something he'd been encouraging them to do before. Uh, He's he's been well known to them as someone who encourages them to have joy. And it's no different here. The commands which follow on from that central command to rejoice are all in the context of joy and relationship with God in Christ. And so just note in these verses how joy in the Lord means that reasonableness or gentility is known to all. Joy in the Lord, according to Paul, enables the Philippians to live in a truly distinctive way. Even as they face opposition from the outside world, anyone who looks in on the Philippian church will be able to see a true gentility of spirit that endures through trial, showing that the Lord is truly at work in them. And joy in the Lord also means prayerful trust instead of anxiety. Again, even as they face a backdrop of false teaching and persecution, Paul here reminds them that they have access to God who welcomes their prayer. It's not just that he grudgingly hears them, he actively welcomes and delights in the prayers of his people. So they can pray with absolute confidence that God hears them and also with the assurance that God will give them everything that they need. Even if their circumstances don't change, which they may not, God enables his people to endure. He enables them to stand firm by guarding their hearts and minds with his peace. That goes hand in hand then with that charge in verses 8 to 9, that they should reflect on, they should fill their minds with whatever is true and honourable and just and praiseworthy. They should think about those things. Joy in the Lord means an active filling of the mind with excellent things. We might remember Paul prayed for that all the way back in chapter chapter 1 that they would reflect on what is excellent. Well, again here, the assurances of God's peace as they reflect on the majesties of Christ and imitating the godly examples that they have in Paul and his fellow workers, they will know God's peace. It's as they they express their passive dependence on God in prayer and as they actively seek to take in and to dwell on truths about God, That's when they're able to stand firm. That's when they're able to know joy and peace, even in the midst of opposition. 
I've told you about a few of my favourite movies over the last few weeks. Another one is a movie called Cinderella Man. It's not very well known. It's a Russell Crowe film in which he plays James Braddock. He's a boxer in the early 20th century in America. And he's just gone from being this very wealthy rising star of the boxing circuit to losing everything. He's had a downturn of form in his career. He's broken his hand. And just as his career falls to pieces, the Great Depression happens in America. And so his family loses everything. And there's a really interesting scene near the beginning of the film where he sits down with his wife to pray before this really meagre dinner that that she's prepared. There's very little on their plates. And his wife begins to pray and give thanks for the food before James Braddock, he just pulls away from the dinner table and he says, I'm all prayed on it. He can't do it anymore. He's lost everything. And he finds that his desire to pray has been depleted. And maybe we've found ourselves in that position too. Maybe for many of us, we've experienced the genuine cares and worries of the world and we find that they choke out our confidence and they even choke out our desire to pray. How can I possibly bring these needs before God if he doesn't answer me? Maybe it would be better to not even bother because it will only make me upset and full of doubt if I pray. Well, friends, there's a wonderful assurance here that God welcomes our prayers, that he hears our prayers, and that he responds to our prayers by giving us his peace. Something I'm sure we can all be better at doing as individuals and as a church family is praying. We thought about that on Wednesday night at the Bible study, how it's the quickest way to humble a Christian, asking them how their prayer life is. We all know we need to pray more. But I don't know about you, I can feel sometimes awkward about saying, can I just pray for you now? I can find myself forgetting to pray when I meet with brothers and sisters, when it should be an instinctive thing. Well, it's a challenge for me here, and maybe for all of us as well. Maybe you, like I, have experienced at times the real difficulty of having a God-given sense of peace when the worries and cares of the world choke it out. Well, here we have the assurance for a group of people who are facing real difficulty and trial, that as they present their needs to God in prayer, he gives them peace and he sustains them in joy. That will necessarily mean filling our minds with the things of God. Another thing that makes us feel guilty in the Christian life is how seldom we read our Bibles compared to how we should, and we should read our Bibles more, but I don't want us to, be, to feel beaten up by prayer and Bible reading this morning. Because as well as just reading the word each day, I think these verses encourage us to have a continual thinking on and meditating on the truths of scripture. Not just when we have our Bibles open in the morning or before bed, but through the day as well as we get about our daily lives. There is rich, rich truth that we can rehearse when we're feeling robbed of joy. And if we're not sure where to start, maybe this week we could read back over the book of Philippians. We could rehearse some of the amazing truths that we've dwelt on in our studies in this book. Truths about how God gives us joy, about how he will bring to completion his good work begun in us. How he helps us to contend for the gospel through trial. How the Lord Jesus was willing to surrender his rights, to humble himself and to die for us and has now been risen from the dead so that every Every uh, tongue will confess one day that he is Lord. Some of those amazing truths, just from this one book, 
that we can reflect on, that we can fill our minds and our hearts with. And then we hope and pray that we turn to more instinctively through the week, no matter what life may throw at us. Rejoicing in spirit and rejoicing in prayer is easier, I take it, when we already have our minds full of the things of Christ. Paul encouraged us last time out to think of people who we can imitate. And here he gives an example of how he himself is once again someone they can follow, someone who makes his requests known to God. And he goes on as well. They stand firm in oneness of mind, they stand firm in Christ-centered rejoicing, and the Philippians are also to stand firm in active partnership. Our final heading, verses 10 to 23. Maybe when you were growing up, your parents would force you to write thank you cards to relatives when they gave you birthday presents. And usually when you were doing that, you might write, dear granny and granda, I'm writing to thank you for the lovely birthday present. That's how we begin letters. We start with our purpose in writing. We say, this is why I'm writing in the first couple of lines. And then we move on to a more wide-ranging personal update. Well, the norm in Paul's day was essentially the opposite. So it's here at the end of the letter that we see Paul's direct reason for writing to the Philippians. He tells them here that he's writing to say thank you for a financial gift he received from them via Epaphroditus. Now, there aren't many commands in these verses, but it's clear to see that a commitment to financially supporting the work of the gospel will be another aspect of their standing firm in the Lord. That's the case for a few reasons. At, the, at heart, it's an expression of partnership. Verse 14, it was kind of you to have partnership with me, is literally how that verse reads. They're committed to serving Paul in this way, in spite of, maybe even because of his trouble, because they want to ensure that his work of sharing the gospel can continue. They want to make sure that their work of partnership is ensuring an ongoing gospel witness. So their generosity towards Paul is a truly active, practical expression of the gospel-centered partnership we've seen they've had with Paul all through the letter. And that seems to be what Paul is rejoicing in, not just the gift itself. We can imagine that when we get a bit of a cash injection when we're hard up, it can make us feel pretty joyful. But if Paul's concern was how much money he had in the bank, he'd have packed it in a long, long time ago. Yet through his times of trial, his experience has taught him to find contentment in Christ. He can do all things, verse 13, through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, it's a bit of a, what I call a t-shirt verse. We can see it all over the place. People can get it on a t-shirt or a mug and keep it in front of them. I know there's um, a, a basketball player in America, Steph Curry. He's got Philippians 4.13 written on his trailers. And it helps inspire him to keep pushing for more and to believe that he really can win that basketball game. Well, I want to suggest that he, like many of us, has missed the point. That it's not I can do all things, but through Christ who strengthens me, which is the important part of this verse. It is the strengthening work of Christ which helps Paul to endure and to be content through good times and, crucially, through really difficult times. Paul began this letter by brimming 
with thanksgiving and joy for the Philippians' partnership. And here we find that he closes in a similar vein. He is thankful, he is full of joy because the Philippians have given generously to him. And he knows that that is a sign of God bearing fruit in them. As we see in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's thankful for their money. He's thankful for their financial partnership. But he's more thankful that God is honoured and glorified in the fact that the Philippians are giving. It's like an Old Testament praise offering. It's fragrant and pleasing to God because it demonstrates their faith in, their dependence on him. Paul reminds them that he himself is well supplied, that he has all he needs in Christ, and that he's thankful for their gift because God is glorified by his work of growing the Philippians in their generosity, in their sacrificial commitment to gospel partnership. So as he moves towards a close, he assures them, therefore, that they too can be confident that God will supply every need of theirs richly in Christ. The world affords no greater riches, no finer treasures than being in and belonging to the Lord Jesus. And so Paul's friends in Philippi can continue to partner sacrificially, joyfully, confidently, because in Christ they truly have all they will ever want or need. So for us this afternoon, the message is that part of standing firm is maintaining a commitment to gospel partnership even if times get tough. Now, on an individual level, the message isn't just to cough up and give more, but to consider our approach to giving in gospel partnership, to really meaningfully reflect on what these verses are maybe demanding of us. I think a really good question we can all be reflecting on this week is how much do I really believe that God provides for all of my needs. That's the first and most important thing in how we decide on giving. It's right and it's sensible to make a budget and to work out how we can give responsibly. But I know that too often I'm guilty of being reluctant to give because it might start to hurt a bit more than is comfortable for me, rather than being willing to give at genuine cost to support gospel work. And I also know I'm guilty sometimes of having the wrong priorities in what I give to you. In instinctively preferring some works to other works. Rather than trying to get behind a work that I know will be so useful for the gospel. It can be so tempting to think, well I don't want to partner with this work over here until this church down the road has got a minister. And that's not a bad thing. But occasionally, I think these, these verses are demanding of all of us to lift our eyes to the Lord, to trust that he will provide for his people, and to then weigh up all the demands on our church giving. Which of them will be bearing fruit for the gospel? Which of them are worth throwing ourselves behind, committedly, faithfully, because we know that God will use that work to advance his kingdom in places where it's not being advanced at the minute. But the key thing to cure any of our doubts or quibbles about giving is really knowing contentment and security in Christ. The Philippian church have been faithful and committed in their support of Paul, but maybe with the threat of opposition coming to the door, there's a chance that they might start to get a bit twitchy about the purse strings. 
So that's why Paul is reminding them of God's work in them. How God himself is glorified as they give. As they do something as simple as putting a few coins in the church collection. God is glorified in that. And ultimately, God is the one who provides their every need. So we learn here that if we align our contentment with Christ's work, as Paul does, that then it enables us to give freely. It enables us to give at cost and when it hurts. Because our priority becomes more and more to serve and glorify God rather than to accrue as many good and comfortable things for ourselves as we can. And we can do it in the confidence that we serve the God of lavish, abundant, generous grace who supplies us with everything that we truly need. So that's where we, that's where I need to hear Paul's closing words. That we close with them this afternoon that God will supply our every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Paul finishes the letter with a very simple prayer in verse 23 that the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with the Philippians. We've been considering that in our time together this afternoon. We've been considering it together over the last six weeks. We've seen in this book that at every point the person and work of Jesus and the certainty of an eternity spent with him when he returns lie right at the heart of all of Paul's teaching. And it's that reality, the reality of the depth of his grace, which informs how we partner with one another in our church family, how we strive to grow in our love and our sacrificial service of one another. It's that reality which compels us to strive to grow in godliness, to live lives which are truly worthy of the gospel of Christ as we're humbled by his example of selfless humility. It's that reality which strengthens us to contend for the gospel in how we support and how we participate in the work of making Jesus noble. And it's that life-changing, earth-shattering reality of eternity spent with Christ through his grace that frees us from worry, that enables us to give freely to the work of the gospel, confident that in Christ we have more than we could ever want, imagine, or need. Paul closes his letter in the same way that he opened it all the way back in chapter 1, by extending the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having seen all we have seen together in studying Philippians, I think we can see why these are the most appropriate words to close with. There is no better, there is no truer, simpler way to round off than by simply saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So as we come to the close this afternoon, as we turn to pray in a minute, we will be praying that God will help us to stand firm that he would help us to stand firm in our oneness of mind, in our Christ-centered rejoicing, in our desire to grow in partnership in the gospel practically. We'll pray for all of those things. We'll also pray that he will be filling our hearts and our minds with more of the grace of our Lord Jesus. If there's one thing that we take away and delight in from these studies in Philippians, that's a really good thing to take away that we all delight in and grow and fill our hearts and minds with his majesties, his excellencies, and with his grace. So to that end, if you're able, do stand, and uh, we'll close together in prayer.
pray that you would indeed help us to stand firm. Although we face many trials and difficulties for following Jesus in this life, we pray that you would help us to stand firm and to grow in our love for one another. That you'd help us to stand firm and to grow in our Christ-centered rejoicing. And that you would help us to grow as well in our our passion for, our commitment to partnering in the work of the gospel. And we pray that in and through all all these things, that you would help us once again to rejoice, to fill our hearts and our minds with more of the excellencies of Christ. As you send us out today, we pray you would do so, helping us to rejoice in the grace that you've shown us in him. We pray that you would help us to call to mind all of the wonderful things that we've read in this part of your word, that you would help us to plant them deep within our hearts by your spirit, that you would instinctively make us more people who more and more turn to you in prayer, who delight in you, and who delight in the grace of our Lord Jesus more than any worldly treasure. And so it's in his name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.